everybody. I know you're going to love this episode with Dr. Graham Farmello, who is also a phenomenal podcaster, author, and raconteur of past generations of physicists, philosophers, mathematicians, and that gives him a keen eye and an expert awareness into where the future of our field is going, perhaps. I really enjoyed this conversation. He's talked with everybody that I uh, have so much respect for, everyone from Ed Witten to Nima Akani-Hamed, and uh, today's episode does describe uh, both of those gentlemen as well as others, and going back as far as Newton and beyond. I was thinking of calling this episode uh, From Newton to Nima, uh, but I decided against that. Um, We had uh, just a great deal of fun talking about his perspective on where things like the Cyborg-Witten equations and Feynman's predictions uh, and Freeman Dyson figures very prominently in this episode, in this book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, which is, of course, the title of his most recent book and even his podcast. And uh, we just really enjoyed each other's company, I think, to discussing this. This interview was actually recorded earlier in the year, like May, I think it was, but it's taken me a while to kind of get through my back catalog. And only now as the holiday season approaches, are we able to really um, tackle these great ideas. We talked about amazing and interesting things, uh, comparing them with past guest Sheldon Glashow, including whether or not space-time is fundamental. We talked about supersymmetry in light of recent experimental data. We talked about past guest Juan Maldacena and his duality conjectures. And uh, we also talked about things that are resilient that may not change going forward a hundred years, a thousand years from now. So I really uh, enjoyed this conversation. I know you will too. And I only ask if you do enjoy it to share it with other people. That's the best way to help the show grow. Uh, So as we approach the holiday season, that is the gift you can get for me, along with perhaps uh, you could you could leave a review, as I often request. We're up to 311 reviews. I can't believe it. Uh, just tripled or quadrupled even in the last year or so. I uh, wanted to read a one of my last recent reviews that I got from JMac OS. It's a new operating system. Title, so knowledgeable. Brian is one of the best read, most knowledgeable communicators of science I have encountered. I really appreciate that. Uh, And it's really lovely to talk uh, with great minds like Graham Farmello, as you'll hear in today's podcast. So as we approach the holiday season, I express gratitude to you and uh, and want to uh, just commend you to read this wonderful book by Graham Farmello, The Universe Speaks in Numbers. You can find his podcast, which hasn't been so active. And let me know if you'd like to have him back on the show for his other books about Winston Churchill and and Dirac, who makes an appearance in this episode as well. Uh, For now, I am now going to sign off and implore you to enjoy this ride into the impossible with Graham Farmello describing how the universe speaks in numbers. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. guest is, is really a wonderful and delightful writer and a, uh, a fellow podcaster and author. A wonderful, wonderful author of many books, books about Dirac, books about Churchill, books about 
uh, books about the universe. And today we're going to be talking about this book and we're going to schedule, you know, five more parts, five more episodes. If, if Graham will beg me his forbearance or my forbearance, I don't know which forbearance we'll do, but, but Graham Farmello, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. You know, my motto of my channel is always be curious, ABC. And I think I will title this episode uh, from Newton to Nima, because we're going to go from this little man here. This is supposed to be Isaac Newton, a finger puppet of Isaac Newton. What? And no, gonna... Oh, I see the bottom. I'm sorry. It looks like Einstein, but I see he's holding Newton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have an, I have an Einstein. Einstein is, uh, he's over there. I'll get Einstein later, but there's uh this is Isaac Newton. It, 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 he's not a good representation, but Nima doesn't, they don't uh, have one for Nima just yet. These, <laughs> these finger puppet manufacturers, they're a little bit behind the time, just a couple hundred years or so. So <laughs> I want to uh, talk about the, the universe speaks in numbers. There's a theme that runs through it. And I've been talking a lot on my podcast into the impossible about uh, the difference of opinions uh, as to whether or not, first of all, we need a theory of everything, whether a theory of everything is a proper scientific discipline. And my first question to you uh, is sort of a pun, but it's sort of a, a, a truth hidden within the pun. And that's, I wonder, Graham, sometimes are we putting the uh, the toe before the gut? In other words, we don't have a grand unified theory, as far as I know, that everybody agrees upon. And yet we're kind of obsessed with a theory of everything that unites all four forces. Yet we don't really have a, a very strong inkling of, of how to unify the three strongest forces. What do you think about this notion that we're obsessed with kind of skipping the, the gut and going straight to the toe? I would say um, I think there's a danger here of uh, over-dramatizing um, what, uh, what, what physicists are, see uh, are seeking to do. Um, mm. I, I, I must say straight away, I mean, I, I, or like all authors, you know, uh, I, it's very tempting to go with these brief acronyms and these, you know, these big, big ideas uh, and what have you. But I, 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 I'm much more comfortable myself with, uh, with a, a, if you like, a plainer statement of uh, what I believe physicists, are, uh, theoretical physicists are seeking to do with, of course, experimental physicists. What, what I think uh, we, we are seeking to do is find a theory of the uh, most fundamental uh, interactions that we know of in nature. What do we mean by that? I mean, interactions where we don't, uh, we, we are, don't know that they are built from something deeper, so to speak. In other words, things that we find as fundamental and the most fundamental entities uh, that we can identify. Now, uh, you could never put that on a T-shirt. I realize that. But basically, we're talking about the, uh, you know, the, uh, the strong, weak electromagnetic uh, interactions and the thing that looks very different superficially, uh, uh, which is gravity. Now, uh, physicists of, that, of this kind of persuasion uh, are very, very focused on the uh, understanding the, the smallest possible, the largest possible, so the cosmos and the, and the very smallest. But following my, my late friend, uh, Phil Anderson, you, or I think it's, it, I really do think it's important to bear in mind that, you know, e, e, even if you have the standard model in it, all its glory, remember it's how beautifully tested it is, you still can't predict the shape of a cauliflower, for example. Mm -hmm. There are things you can't do with those fundamental uh, 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 theories 
uh, or and no one knows how to do it because there are other principles that other types of physicists uh, look at. Now, I'm not. I I do believe that there is such a thing as uh, you, you know a fundamental branch of physics, but I do think it's important to have some humility and bear in mind that we're not talking about the whole of physics here. We're talking about you know actually quite a small, but in my opinion, very significant proportion of the whole activity of physics, right? So, and and I think uh, that it, it, it's over overplaying it to think that uh, that you, that we have ever sort of, or rather in certainly in the immediate future come up with a you know a theory that you can write on a t-shirt or what have you that from which everything else will plainly follow I do I think that mm. is overselling it frankly mm, yeah I was speaking of course about my past guest Michio Kaku who's uh, been on the show and and is gracious and and kind and as uh, likes to talk and promote the God equation. And, and we can talk about God, of, of course, as, as Isaac Newton was wont to do. And I, I love the quote that you have in your book, you know, kind of a, a, a pertinent to... Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sort of this notion that we talk about nowadays, the imposter syndrome. Uh, I did a podcast with Barry Barish not too long ago that inspired oh, yeah. my next book, which is going to be called uh, Think Like a Nobel Prize Winner. And Barry told me he had the imposter syndrome uh, once in his life. And I said, uh, you got to be kidding me. You know, that that can't be anymore. And he's like, no, I feel it even more than, than ever. Oh. Because when I got the Nobel Prize, I had to sign this logbook saying I got the actual golden medallion. And I saw Albert Einstein's name. And I said, I'm not worthy. And I said, Barry, come on, you must know that he must have felt that somebody else was, you know, his superior, probably Isaac Newton. And in your book, in, you know, chapter two, you point out that uh, Albert Einstein called, uh, you know, uh, Isaac Newton basically the greatest con contributor to Western culture, yeah. um, you know, uh, in history. And then, and then you go one step further and you say Isaac Newton basically didn't speak about what physicists were, but he spoke about God. And he was sort of, a, you know, he had imposter syndrome about Jesus Christ Almighty. And, and it's just interesting to me because, you know, the universe or God speaks in numbers. <clears throat> and uh, there's a quote by a mathematician, you know, that um, God created the integers and all the rest is mentioned, Verk. Uh, I forget. My father was a mathematician. He used to say things like that to me. Um, but uh, my question to you, first of all, is does, does the universe speak in integers or real numbers, irrational numbers? Well, what do you uh, think? I, I've got to say here that uh, if, if you uh, – if I were a more ambitious person uh, in terms of just putting out there exactly what I mean, mm. uh, I would say that, that uh, I was alluding there to a sentiment of Dirac's, uh, which yes. is that the universe speaks in mathematics. Mm. Right now, I mean, I ask for I ask for your uh, one's indulgence on this. You may not think that uh, there's a, a big difference. What I'm trying, what I'm alluding to there, is the idea that uh, we. Uh, can learn about the universe not just through uh, making observations uh, on it, but also there is another um, uh, way of learning about it, which is uh, through uh, mathematics. Now, it's very, very important to recognize that uh, physics and mathematics are not the same thing. 
right? That is really, really uh, important, right? Mm-hmm. The great majority of physicists, right, uh, uh, are not involved in the world of, of mathematics research per se and, and vice versa. Um, but, and this is the point about, uh, about uh, Dirac, um, it, he argued uh, in his great 1939 lecture, which we could talk, we could talk about here uh, all day, because <laughs> yes. uh, it is a phenomenal, phenomenally insightful uh, lecture. That if you look at these, uh, uh, what he would call the fundamental theories of nature, so he's thinking about uh, quantum mechanics, uh, theory of the very, very small. He's talking about uh, um, Einstein's theory of uh, relativity of space and time and gravity. That each time there is an advance. They are framed in terms of what Dirac would say is more and more beautiful mathematics. Now, you don't need to be a genius to say, well, Paul, what do you mean by beautiful mathematics? And that's a fair question. I don't think he gives it a perfect answer, to put it to be uh, to be honest. He simply says, well, if you don't know what that means, right, uh, I can't help you because mathematicians know what that means. And I've got to say, with the greatest respect to Dirac, I mean, I don't think that is a... Uh, is a watertight definition. But I th- uh, that said, I still think it's a useful idea, right? Mm. Whereby uh, you, uh, you work uh, with uh, uh, ideas of increasing mathematical uh, power, you could say beauty, universality, and all the things that beauty entails. And it can be, uh, it, 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 in the right hands, Dirac's, uh, and, and, and other uh, great physicists, Einstein in particular, had similar views, which we could talk about. Uh, it, mathematics can be a lodestar which guides you in the right direction. Let me be clear uh, that just working on mathematics will not get you to uh, your most ambitious theories, just working on that. It takes an enormous amount of skill and judgment in order to bring together both of those things. Very, very few people can, can, can do that. And the problem is today, uh, that has been the theme of your podcast, but maybe not stated always very explicitly, but we're in a very, very odd time at the moment in the kind of physics we're talking about because yeah. we found to our, to, what you could say, consternation of physicists that the standard model of the subatomic uh, forces works much, much better than we ever dreamed it, it, it would do, so much better that this incredible machine our experimentalist friends have brilliantly made has really only given us so far uh, what uh, it's gifted us a, a, a proof, so to speak, of the existence of the Higgs particle, the last, last brick in the in the wall, so to speak, of the standard model. But it, uh, to at the amazement of people, it hasn't shown up these extra uh, this this uh, richer structure at higher energies. So. Uh, it, 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 that is why, very broadly speaking, without those clues which we so yearned for, right, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, many leading physicists, including uh, Niemers, one of them, there's many others, um, are, are, are working on parts of physics where uh, they're guided as well as what we already know by beautiful uh, ma- mathematics. Mm. Now, let me yes. just say, it'd be much better. Let me, let me, I've, often, I've said in book reviews before, people. You know, if if we had a choice, it's a silly thing to say, but you'll know what I'm I'm getting at. You know, if we had a choice now between another Einstein or you know another Rutherford, right? We take the Rutherford because we <laughs> we we really really need more experimental clues. 
And yeah, it, well, it has been, uh, you know, I, Nima berates me for saying this, but, you know, I think most physicists would say it's been very disappointing, saddening. Nima, let him speak for himself, but I think he'd say, no, nature is telling you something. You've got to be smart, right? Um, but we're in a difficult place. I can't remember a time like this since the beginning of theoretical physics where, you know, so many elite physicists are uh, are struggling to know which way to proceed. And that's why there's been this culture now of naysayers coming out saying, no, you're all the, all the best people are all getting it all wrong, right? right. That gap has been left. Uh, has been filled by by these uh, um, outriders, and I and I wonder, you know, uh, from the experimentalist point of view, first of all, I, I thank you, and I'll I'll Venmo you some cash for the plug for experimental physics. Oh, uh, first of all, we're looking toward the heavens now, and and I wonder, uh, you know, what what you would make of it, or what theorists would make of it, you know, if for the very first time in history, um, a cosmologist or an astronomer would tell an elementary particle physicist the mass yeah. of a fundamental particle like the neutrino. That seems to be Katrin just came out with an upper limit of order the electron volt uh, for the mass sum total of neutrinos, and I, where I'm like, welcome to night, you know, to uh, 2005 in the cosmic microwave background. Uh, no, congratulations to them. It's a wonderful laboratory-based result. It's it incredibly is, painstaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, we're far ahead of that. We're in the you know milli electron volt, you know, hundreds of milli electron volt regime, and we're going to do better with Simon's Observatory and 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 cosmic microwave background experiments to come. But uh, when I say when I hear uh, experiment uh, theorists kind of do things like, well, we need a future experimental uh, a collider or something like that to test my theory of everything, be it uh, my friend Eric Weinstein or um, uh, loop quantum gravity in the form of Carlo Ravelli, who's been on the show, or Lee Smolin, or you know any of these folks, or or you know Nima when he comes on the show. Uh, I often say, well, you know, imagine if I had went back, you know, twenty years ago, Graham, and I and I said to you. Um, well, I, how about this? I, I can't build you a bigger, better Large Hadron Collider just yet, mm -hmm. but I can smash together two 30 solar mass objects oh, uh, comprised of you know pure neutronic you know uh, material at at half the speed of light, and I can do that uh, you know, and I can I can do that, and I can record that many many times, yep. and I can give you you know an atom smasher that smashes together you know ten to the 59th atoms of pure <laughs> hadronic material. How about that? You know, can you can you make uh, some predictions as what your theory would say? And and they all say, well, you know, in other words, what when Newton was thinking about the unification of color theory, you know, he could go and 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 blank out parts yeah. of the of the spectrum, and he could look at the low energy limit, and and he could use that later to think about unification. How come theorists are not thinking about the low energy limit as as a clue to what the high energy frontier might yield? Could we even approach it? Well, I take your point uh, that uh, Steve Weinberg once commented to me that you know the new uh, you, you know the frontiers at the moment look like they're in in astrophysics and cosmology with all these incredible results like the increasing acceleration of the uh, universe. What what a result that was! Nobody ordered that. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember when the standard model was being uh, basically formed. Um, mm. At, you know, with you know, with your Weinberg, your Wilczek's, Grosses, and, and many, many other people uh, there, right? And, and it was an incredible experience. It really was an incredible experience to me. You know, I re I remember, for example, people uh, saying, uh, "Well, I, I could give you several examples." With uh, one, uh, not in the standard model, but I remember Ron Drever uh, mm -hmm. in my first academic job coming and giving a talk, and people laughing at the thought of detecting gravitational waves 
right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can remember very clearly uh, meetings at the Royal Society where people were saying that the, uh, the third lepton, right? Well, you know, come on, you know, it, it, you know, but Marty Paul wants a Nobel Prize and what have you, all right? And we know what happened, right? Um, so, you know, I, it, uh, I've seen this where people, and of course, I remember when reading about Rudy Piles, where he he one of the great theorists of the war years and and soon afterwards, saying that you know, well, no one's actually going to detect the neutrino. You know, I mean that that's just not going to be on, and that's why I I'm reluctant ever to say that we'll never be able to test this. We'll never be able to do these very high energy experiments because mm. you know you never know what is around the corner. Yeah. Um, so one of my uh, heroes and friends that I'm blessed to know is Jim Simons, who plays a very uh, important role in this book. I've tried to get Frank Yang on the podcast as well. Uh, he's, he's quite elderly, as you know. Uh, and you describe in the book, um, <clears throat> uh, and the, the book is, is, is so delightful, you describe the role of, of, of Frank and, and Jim Simons uh, as sort of this interesting role that I believe is sort of echoed later, although amplified certainly by Ed Witten, as sort of a catalyst, you know, bridging together the you know the the older generation in the in the form of of the rack and and maybe with with uh, genetic material in some sense of, of of Maxwell and then literally in the form of Yang and Mills you know basically on steroids the <laughs> the Maxwell equations uh, and then and then later you know inculcating it with with the Chern Simons can you say something about you know where is Witten in all this now uh, of course you know with with large you know nowadays I see him on on you know Twitter and and so forth and he's He's talking about Israel, you know, basically all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering where is he getting any time to, 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 you know, to do any string theory or any work. But I haven't seen, and, and his most recent papers are about maybe Planet Nine is a black hole. Has he given up? I mean, what, what's going on with with Witten these days? And is anyone playing the catalytic role that he once played, or Jim Simons is playing uh, once played? Well, I think. It, uh... Again, I, I feel a little bit, I, I've got to answer your question out of courtesy, but yeah. you know, I feel a bit bad <laughs> speculating on what uh, on what Edward is, is doing. I will say that he is very carefully spoken. He knows about, that people like me, and I dare say your good self, take a lot of notice. On my podcast, when I put that one up, it practically broke, <laughs> broke my server. Yeah. You know, everybody listened to exact, uh, and it, he is really worth listening. I mean, to quote Weinberg, Edward is deep, deep, deep. Right yeah. now, no, it's a phenomenal. He is, he is and we'll and have a link to it in our and he, no, he doesn't throw around these words, uh, th th these big. Uh, and I, I think I know people. We want that from the leaders, the preeminent people in our field. But he's very, very careful. I certainly have heard him say, right, uh, that uh, I, uh, picking up the point we discussed uh, just a few minutes ago. You know, it's difficult. It's difficult to know what to do. In the, in the face of what we're seeing at the LHC, right? Um, now, that's not because people like him are not brilliant. It's because it's not, uh, we, we really weren't ready for that, uh, for this outcome. Uh, for, oh, outcome, if that's the wrong word, but the findings of the Large Hadron Collider. It, maybe it's all going to end. Maybe, maybe <laughs> you know, something's going to show up next week. But at the moment, it really, it, it's starting to look like uh, we're not going to be finding these, uh, you know, these wonderful, things uh, mm. uh, phenomena that we were hoping for uh, i remember incidentally there's one little thing before i come back to edward that i was uh, one of the people that worked on the draft of the um uh, the public relations strategy of the large hadron collider oh, wow. and i was yeah for the for the uh, for the british research council and i was looking at that document the other day right it's an internal document 
and it will be canvassed uh, the, the very best physicists ask them what they were expecting for the Large Hadron Collider, right? And uh, I have to say, I think we broke down something like, it was something like a dozen things that we, that might, you know, large, large, new, large extra dimensions, supersymmetry, of course, uh, right? And yeah. uh, what, did we, what did we found? We found that the Higgs particle. Yeah, and that's and it. That's it, right? <laughs> now, I, please, I put me in an experiment here. This is absolutely not to put down the fantastic experimental work that has been done right. to get those things. But my goodness gracious, we really did. Uh, it, it, so, so far, maybe things change next week, but so far, you know, uh, we, we we really have got very little out of, out of what, additional value out of it. Um, now, I, I think, going back to Edward, I said, I, as I said, I, with apologies to him if he ever hears this, like, should, people like me shouldn't be summarising what Witten says, but... I suspect he's saying I don't uh, have a useful suggestion about what to do next, mm-hmm. right? He went, yeah. What he did say to me, it's in my podcast, I treasure the, the quote because it yeah. is so powerful that I asked him, right, about, uh, you know, whether he thought string theory had, uh, uh, that, I mean M-, M theory by that, but the generalized uh, string theory, right, uh, about other options. And he mm-hmm. said, right, and I remember very carefully, I listened to it so carefully, oh, is that string theory is the only interesting generalization of Yang Mill's uh, quantum field theory, mm. right? Mm. Now, if I were working on loop quantum gravity, which he just says is just words, right, I'd be very, very worried, right? He's the last person in the world you would you regard as a fool in these things, the last person in the world, right, that you would regard as, as somebody who's a simplistic thinker. But I think that that, was, that to me is quite important. He, because he's saying that uh, something that you hear from many experts, uh, 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 not not I don't think he would use these same words, but many people when I was writing the universe big two numbers who were saying to me the biggest problem we have right with string theory is we just don't fully understand it, right? They certainly don't want to write it off. They know it's got they've got serious problems, of course, but it's the best. The only option we interesting option that we that that we have right but that said uh, i i do think it fair to say in all generosity uh, right that uh, it, after the incredible fanfare that the string string theory had in the 80s when it you know with the first string revolution the second one where edward did that incredible work and then with the uh, developed in the late 90s uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, very difficult to uh, identify in a clear, communicable way the progress that we're making with that field. Not mm. to say you throw it away, but uh, it, it's not easy to, uh, uh, to how can I put it, to say, well, we solved this problem, this problem, basically everything is sorted out. Right. So th- that's why I think we're in a difficult position on this. Yeah, I, I agree. And and to, to that extent, I feel there is some glibness on the part of folks like Michio Kaku, who will, you know, rightfully say that he is the father of, you know, string field theory. And he wrote down some of the first, you know, Feynman diagrams in the early 70s. And I reviewed those on the interview I did with him. <clears throat> but then he'll go, you know, turn around and say, if we get this, uh, we'll know the mind of God. And your countryman, Stephen Hawking, also is no stranger to hyperbole about string theory, M theory, even to the point of conceding bets uh, willy-nilly. You know, I wish I – I did meet him once. I heard him speak once 
uh, and that was wonderful at a Royal Society meeting in 1995. I'll treasure that. I heard about that in your earlier podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but the the fact is, he would always concede these bets uh, long before I think you know he should have. Uh, maybe it was for the publicity of conceding bet. You know, Stevens concedes a bet because. They were conceded on the basis of, you know, calculations in five-dimensional ADS-CFT by Juan Maldacena or something, you know, <laughs> but, uh, which is, you know, so far removed from any kind of uh, experimental verification. I mean, I think it's, you know, as as, as some have said, it's it's uh, impossible to to you know deny that it could be that black holes uh, preserve information, but you can't necessarily confirm it. So. Uh, fellow guest uh, Leonard Susskind has said, "You know, this is this is my battle to preserve quantum mechanics." Well, who knows? But but when Michio says things like this, the mind of God, and quotes that at the end of his book, um, I, I think it does a disservice because ultimately, beauty, as Ed is saying, implicit is is subjective, and as yeah. Uh, he's saying it's interesting. That's a euphemism for beauty, or you know, there's something uh, that piques his fancy. And as my namesake. Uh, the poet Keats said, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. That is all ye need know on earth and all ye need to know. <laughs> uh, and actually Dirac, you know, echoed that. The only time I think that he used the, uh, referred to God, he was not a religious man by any means, as you know, uh, he said, God is a mathematician of a very high order as uh, you've, you've said this, Graham, so you know this, but I'm saying for my listeners who may not know Graham's wonderful, you know, words on Dirac and I recommend it. Uh, God is a mathematician of a very high order and he used very advanced mathematics in constructing the universe. So, um, I, I think it's interesting that we do this, but we also don't necessarily, um, have a rubric or a criteria set for how do we judge these theories? How do we, you know, beauty is is one thing, but I don't know if you've ever seen this, Graham, um, but they've done studies on who is handsome, who is beautiful. So they take um, they take Brad Pitt, so he's <laughs> reputedly the most handsome man on earth. Okay, present company excluded. Okay, Grant, sure. Graham. Uh, so they'll they'll take Brad Pitt, but then they'll say uh, they'll uh, they've done say they'll take his face and they'll divide it down the middle. They'll take a picture of him and then they'll mirror image they'll reflect his left side to his right side, and then that'll be a new face. Mm -hmm. He looks grotesque. He looks hideous. <laughs> Nobody wants to look at it, and he'll be the ugliest man on earth. So symmetry is ugly. And actually, it's the broken symmetry that we find beautiful and allows us to live, as you point out in this book. You know, the, 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 the broken symmetry is what's actually beautiful about the world. If perfect symmetry would be perfect, uh, you know, entropy, we wouldn't exist. Mm. So we would have equilibrium. So, um, so, so why is it that beauty – I don't think beauty should necessarily be a condition of uh, – it might work for Keats and poetry, but not necessarily for physics. So – what, what do you make of this? Should we have a rubric that we apply? At the end of your book, you, you come up with six ideas that you think will stand the test of time from our modern era. But let's start right now. What kind of a rubric could we put forth for grading candidate theories of everything? What, what would count? What would you put in such a rubric? Oh, wow. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good, it's a good question. It's a pretty tough. Let me just, I'll come back to it, I promise. Yeah, I don't, sure, sure. Come and get back to me. I just want yeah. to say that I think the mind of God. When I read that sentence in uh, Hawking's book, uh, I thought that's an inspired uh, last line. And you're an author. I bet as an author, you would know what, right? Because somehow it has a kind of, it, it's uh, it's poetic um, and it's a metaphor, right? Sure. It is absolutely, of course, it is not a, a literal statement, right? Correct. Now, uh, I simply say that by overusing it, 
it is it is actually borderline silly, frankly, to try to make that more than it is. Right. Mm -hmm. I think most people, even if they're not physicists, uh, if you describe to them basically what physicists are trying to do, understanding these different interactions in terms of mathematical theories, if you have a theory, you can explain all these. People know. Yeah, I get what you mean, and it's it's somehow it you know it's it's a satisfying way of summarizing it. But to, to try to talk about that as a desideratum, right? Mm -hmm. To me is uh, well, you, you wouldn't get anyone <laughs> saying that. I'll tell you now, you really wouldn't. Now, in terms of the the, the progress we make, right? The first thing is uh, uh, not to be uh, uh, sniffed at, in my view. Right? You absolutely must, uh, in the standard way in science, you have to generate all the successful predictions right, that have been uh, made by theories before. Now, and that, that, may, that is why the essential guide rails of people working in this field are quantum mechanics and uh, relativity, right? Now, it is it, something that I try to uh, emphasize in that book. Perhaps I didn't do it enough, right? Because uh, it's still not spoken about enough, in my opinion, is that if I were asked, right, what is the central lesson of the uh, late 20th century theoretical physics? I would say it is the astonishing power, right, of yoking together what looked like the uh, the most unlikely of bedfellows, which are relativity and quantum mechanics. They look completely different mathematically. They are different of nature. We know that. One's a classical theory. One, of course, is quantum. They're, they're not the same thing. And if you do something right, uh, uh, as, as bold as to try to bring them together, right, and Dirac, I believe, was the first person to start on that road. Many others worked on that, right, then it is the the key thing is to say that if you want to set out a, a quantum field theory of the uh, uh, interaction between charged particles like electrons and photons, for example, right? It's Steve Weinberg stresses in his quantum field theory book. It's incredibly difficult to do. It really is only just possible. Now that's a really important thing to understand. It's not just a question of whether well, this is easy to bring these two things together, right? It's extremely difficult. It's almost like you're you're going on an, a, a razor's edge, so to speak. And yet, that theory, right, uh, you're talking about here Dirac and Heisenberg and several other authors, then made usable by Dyson, Schwinger, Feynman, Tomonaga, right? That mm -hmm. theory is umpteen decimal places, right? Now, that is telling you something, right? It is saying that these two improbable theories, when brought together, are putting you in the right direction. And you look at the other uh, great, great successes of those two things. Of course, the uh, direct prediction of the uh, anti-electron, the anti-matter, came out of quantum mechanics and relativity, right? Hawking's mm -hmm. greatest triumph came from taking general relativity and brilliantly uh, working with it in a way that doesn't actually, isn't actually a unification, but is, a, if you like, a jamming together, ingenious jamming together of quantum mechanics and uh, the, uh, an Einstein's theory of gravity. And of course, the, uh, the, the modern uh, quantum field theory of, uh, of, of all the subatomic forces—they're all based on those things, and they—that—that that is incredibly difficult to do. It's something that, as I said, I don't think it's stressed nearly enough. Uh, physicists don't just sit down and write any old theories down; they have to stick to those, the, uh, those, uh, the, 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 these two um, 
giant foundation stone. Right, yeah. As Nima says, it's very hard to break the standard model of quantum mechanics. Absolutely right. Uh, Actually, I use that, Graham. That's part of my rubric. So I look for, you know, I study, you know, the cosmic microwave background. And within that, I used to think the greatest trophy of all would be gravitational waves and detecting B-mode polarization from the putative inflationary origin of the universe. Of course, I wouldn't turn that down. And some say, been there, done that. Uh, Of course, we had to retract and recant, as you know, uh, better than anyone probably besides me. Uh, This would cause great sensation. But the... um, uh, but the quest that really um, motivates me now is the search potentially for small departures from our most cherished symmetries, Lorentz invariance, perhaps primordial magnetism, phase transitions. These are ways that we can, in Nima's words, break the standard model, but they must be subtle. They must be subtle, but maybe as the Lord is not malicious, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so those are, you know, it's very hard to do. And that is part of the rubric that I think becomes very hard to so we're we're the low hanging fruit has been picked and 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 so we're left with beating our head and grinding our head against granite but but I I guess you know the question becomes are there low energy ways so the CMB is a low energy phenomenon it's you know uh, 3 kelvin photons but they trace the properties potentially of a very high energy phenomenon and that's what makes it interesting to me so my hope is that are there other you know ways that we can look machine learning, you know, other exoplanet. I, I don't know. There's some signature using cosmic data, perhaps, or, or laboratory data, um, uh, microgravity scales to test, um, to test, you know, departures from the standard model indicative to grade these theories. Because when I talk to Michio or I talk to proponents of string theory, they say things like, well, you know, um, how is it possible that, you know, like when I complain about the multiverse aspects of, of string theory, well, you know, how many solutions are there to Maxwell's equations? There's an infinite number. You have to tell us the, the, you know, the boundary conditions, the initial conditions. Okay, well, I can tell you boundary conditions from physical observation, mm-hmm. but you can't retrodict and use that as a prediction. For example, G minus two results came out. LHCB results. Oh, the mule, Michio yeah. was, yeah, he was claiming those are those are come as results of string theory. I said, come on, how, how can that be? How can that be? It can't. You can't claim everything, right? And you can't simultaneously say. You have to tell me the vacuum state. Why is that my job as the experimentalist? Shouldn't that be the outcome of, of the of the theory? No. I, I, uh, well, I, I, to me, uh, I, you know, I, I, the, the more I look at the history of, of this this subject, I I really commend the position of the conservative revolutionary. Mm. I, and if we start mm-hmm. off with the first theore- theoretical physicist, I mean, I know that's a subjective matter, but a very good choice for that is Max Planck, right? And uh, I, I, I admit, I mean, this is being fanciful. I accept that, accept that. But I will always be fascinated with this extremely conservative physicist, right? Who was, you know, told by his supervisor, I believe, it was that you know, there's, there's nothing to be uh, uh, learned now in physics. Basically, we've got the basic rules. And then he took, he took what is a good, a good, um, you, is a very good example of the most dramatic uh, step. Right in proposing that re- uh, radiation is uh, c- comes in quanta, right? <laughs> and uh, to quote uh, Bram Pays, right, the mathematics of doing that was mad, right? Mm. I mean, e- even if you, even if you're a, a you know a a, a, a passable college student, right, a physics could see that basically it pretty much made no sense, right? But he was <laughs> right, right? Yeah. And it took Einstein then to take it on another step forward and, and beautifully clarify uh, what, what he meant by that. Uh, this is the point where I'm going to speculate. Uh, and 
like most speculations, probably wrong, but I'd, I'd be interested in your views on it, that, you know, I just wonder whether we're missing something, some insight, right, that, uh, uh, that, 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 that is as radical, as uh, revolutionary, right, as mm. that contribution of Planck's was. It, yeah. it, is all this confusion, could it be resolved? I'm not saying in a trice, but it, are we missing something really, uh, really big? Right now, yeah, as I said, I, obviously it may be nonsense, but I just wonder, you know, the state we're in, whether whether we are just missing something. I was thinking about that as I was reading it, and just I couldn't help but but uh, you know just just imagine the the amount of you know obviously progress is usually there's a paper called Progress by Compression. Uh, it's a wonderful paper, um, and, and one of the culminations of it is you know think about how much compression is involved in, in Einstein's E equals MC squared, like how much information, how much notions about reality are compressed into yeah. that. And I think that's true. And then, of course, think of how many books are needed to explain what is the meaning of that. And then it's like expansion. But but now think the opposite way, Graham. Think like 1901 Planck, you know, 1900, 1901 Planck Nobel Prize for, you know, a three-symbol equation, you know, E equals H nu or E equals HF or, uh, you know, and then and then Einstein later, you know, his, not nah, he didn't win the Nobel Prize for it, but, but E equals MC squared, four symbols, you know. And now it's like Nima and, and, and his colleague, and it's like 100 pages <laughs> of mathematical formulae. And, and I'm wondering, like, is this going in the right direction or is that just a symbol that the low-hanging fruit have been picked? And, um, and, and it is curious to me, you know, is I can't tell, I, I don't know when I look at things. So I, I do like to ask my, my, the people that like the Kakos, cause I do think that he has interesting insights. So I said to him, here's, um, here, here are some interesting arguments from critics of string theory, Lee Smolin, Carlo Rovelli. And, um, and, and by the way, these are people that you don't necessarily agree with. you believe that the Fair tradition yeah, yeah. of we thrive on like the agreement in physics. Yeah, yeah, but you, uh, but but the, but you're, you know, you're obviously um, you get along and 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 you don't you don't um, necessarily um, uh, there's there's no hard feelings. You're just criticizing. No, 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 no. no, no. The, yeah, but um, but Michio is much more aggressive. I think he's saying, well, look, there's nothing in their theory. They don't even have fermions. You know, they're they're doing something. Maybe it's gravity, but it's not a theory of everything the way string theory. Is. String theory can give you you know, the elephant and it can wiggle its tail. A string theory can give you the one inch equation. It can give you, uh, even mathematics. And, and my thing to him was, well, can it, can it do over much? You know, can it, can, because of this vacuum problem, is there not a danger that, um, that, that, you know, the laws of physics might be different in each one of these landscape universes, but maybe the laws of logic, maybe the laws of mathematics. In other words, how is it that you're guaranteed to have a self-consistent form, you know, modus tollens? Is it going to agree in a universe, a landscape where even, you know, even these dimensions, we don't necessarily have evidence that they agree. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't really answer that except to say that in string theory, you know, you get gravity out naturally. But again, I said, we don't have evidence for these large dimensions. And so my question is, is it is it not already falsified? And his basic response is, it's too early to say that, and all the other candidate theories, as Witten would say, are uninteresting, and if not um, uh, if not already wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, so, I do think, uh, personally, I, uh, I, you know, I respect his point of view, and his, his heart's in the right place, but I do think that it's almost, he's almost like he's in the 80s, where, mm -hmm. where that that sense of almost triumphalism in, in uh, string theory, mm. but it, it, to say that now, with, when yeah. there are so many uh, challenges bes uh, uh, besetting the theory, 
you can't really blame people for being skeptical, right? Because, you know, I mean, I, I, I know this might sound naive, but in the end, you know, the plain person is going to want to know, right, why should I believe in this, right? Yes, yes. Um, now, uh, the, the, uh, I do think we owe uh, people who are not physicists at, at least a, you, you know, indications of, of, of why we take string theory uh, seriously. And as I said, that quote of Edwards, it's the most interesting generalization of a of an obviously successful Yang Mills field theory. At least, at least that that is at least clear about what it is. But there are so many things that uh, that uh, that string theory uh, uh, hasn't done. For example, it hasn't retro explained things. You know, there are, you, I don't think I think I'm right in saying that you can't. Take problems in, in in the physics of fundamental particles that were that were explained by string theory backwards, so to speak. Right? See, mm-hmm. Weinberg mentioned that. Yeah. Like, that's my understanding of it when I spoke to him about mm-hmm. uh, about this. So, you know, I I, I think you know, do you know, what I think there's a cultural thing here, uh, uh, Brian, because mm-hmm. you know we're in an age where where, every, where everyone can be an expert for a start. Everyone can have a view on anything, right? And I'm, as I mentioned at the end of my book, I don't wish to be uh, mean spirited, but you know, I think that you know that we've lost this deference for uh, authority. Uh, mm-hmm. Authority, and I don't just mean that we should worship the top, the, you know, the, the most famous Harvard right. professor or what have you. No, we shouldn't, right? But I think we should have at least a respect for why parts of the community are spending so much time on that. And I think there is another point to if I could just be critical uh, for a second. I I think personally it's regrettable that uh, a sober, thoughtful response from string theorists to these critics isn't more forthcoming. I think that's a real shame. I, I think I know why they do it, incidentally, although I'm not going to name any names. That yeah. It's like the Dork, Richard Dawkins um, uh, when, he, when he stopped talking to creationists. Right. right. And that was because he said, you simply can't win. You, you, right. you, you simply can't win. Now, I still think uh, maybe I'm old-fashioned, uh, but I think that there is uh, that there is plenty of room for uh, for a small number of forums where the people who uh, you, you know the uh, people who are very doubtful about the way that, um, uh, that string theory is going can talk to their critics in a way. Now it's not easy to do. I let me say uh, this is not a trivial thing, but at the moment. I see very few examples of where uh, 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 very articulate people on the public side, like Sabina, for example, like Lee and what have you, actually talk in a respectful, straightforward way, right? Instead, it's done through intermediaries, you know? Right, or on Twitter. Yeah. On Twitter. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's helpful. I tell you, I honestly can't think, it may be, it may be my ignorance, but I've thought a fair bit about this, I can't think of another stage in, in physics where it's, been, where it's been like that. I really can't. Right? And nor can I think of a time, maybe it's related, where people who the community of theoreticians would say are the world's leading people are just routinely dissed, right? Mm-hmm. As if, well, they just don't know what they're talking about. They just, right. You know, yeah, I mean, it's I, an incredible situation, right? Again, again, I'm reading your book, and I just love this book so much, Graham. I, I want to just re- reset the uh, conversation for a second. This is The Universe Speaks in Numbers. Graham Farmello, uh, who's just a delight to speak to, the author of several books, Strangest Man, about uh, Paul Dirac, who we'll have back on again. That won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. Uh, he's a fellow at the Churchill College at the University of Cambridge. His book about Churchill, the bomb. Uh, Churchill's a fascinating character. I, I love Winston Churchill. My nine-year-old, 10-year-old is reading uh, his 
thousand page autobiography recently. Tell, it, tell your nine year old to read Hawking. Sorry, that's my present project. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Um, but uh, beg your pardon. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, 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 Churchill's best book, which was actually alluded to in his Nobel citation, was a book your nine year old could read called My oh, wow. Early Life. Okay. Uh, and a yeah. nine year old could read. It's a charming book and it's about his youth. I can't wait. I, I and will, it's, I will it's an easy, it's a lovely read. And I say again, the Nobel people uh, had that in mind when they gave uh, when they gave him his prize. I will certainly refer that to him. Yeah. And uh, and then of course he was a uh, he is a regular visitor at the Institute for Advanced Studies in non-pandemic times, I assume. And he will get back there, and I will hopefully have him someday. Graham, you'll come and visit me in San Diego, where this office used to be occupied by Jeff Burbage. Oh. Uh, and, and Margaret Burbage, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. That segues nicely, maybe perhaps into the conversation we we're just talking about these weird times that we live in. And I was thinking, you know, you talk in the book about these about Maxwell and uh, and and how you know he came up with this mechanical model of how light would propagate, and he used these gears and wheels and vortices and stuff. And can you imagine? Uh, what would have happened if if Twitter were around back then? And, you know, and he he would have had this you know hashtag trending. You know, this fool. You know, these gears. You know, this idiot thinks this Scottish Scotsman. No, that's you know, actually that's a re- that is a really good point. Actually, it's a really good until, point because help- if you if you look at the classic article that Maxwell wrote, which I I spent a few pages in the university, yeah. was talking about about the relationship between physics and mathematics. He yes. talks about a theory of electromagnetic. He doesn't say I'm. I'm the only one who's right. No, everybody else is wrong. All those German guys don't know what they're talking about. He simply right. says, and he he turned out to be right. The poor guy was dead before we knew that. <laughs> right, he died so but young. Think, yeah. No, you raise a good point there. But that you know, if Twitter had been around there, I know that this is a you know what do they call it bending reality. But uh, you know, people simply said, all right, it's uh, it's a it's a theory that Maxwell has got here. He is a brilliant theoretician. Remember, he wasn't a physicist. That never no. became a physicist. He called himself no. a natural philosopher or a natural mathematical philosopher. philosopher. But yes, it, but it was not this uh, you know this uh, this bum fight, so to speak, uh, uh, right. about that. And that, that's an example of even what Karl Popper, you know, who's I always say that physicists, you know, just as uh, biologists have physics envy and uh, and, and it is said, uh, I believe that physicists have, you know, girdle envy or mathematician envy because we can't, you know, really bound what we can't prove. So, you know, Popper kind of substitutes falsification, demarcation, hypothesis substitutes for uh, for demar- for uh, Girdle's uh, incompleteness theorem. But uh, but even Popper himself said there is a place for the uh, for the un, you know unfalsifiable because there is there there is room uh, for the development of a known wrong theory to kind of blossom and bloom because if nothing else it sharpens the correct eventual emergent theory and and that took place in this very room with Jeff Burbage and the quasi steady state theory which prevailed as you probably know you know the the companion yep. paper that Dickie Peebles Roll and Wilkinson put out to the Penzias and Wilson paper doesn't mention the big bang at all it mentions a cyclic you know collapsing universe basically as the origin of the thermal relic you know background it doesn't mention the big bang and obviously we don't believe that to be the case uh, and so too with Maxwell if people had you know so, so uh, this is ridiculous vortices or you know so maybe right now we're, we're you know some of my colleagues and even I on occasion will be too quick to sacrifice string theory on the altar of a falsifiability currently. But I think, you know, the, the challenge that I have as an experimentalist is there's only so many resources. And again, yep. you know, Michio is not here to defend himself. But I said, if you're the head of the NSF 
There's only so many dollars to go around. There's only so many postdocs to go around. And it's not fair to a young person, you know, when they might get their first research grant, you know, at age 41 or 42 here in the US. I, I don't know how it works in the UK, yeah, but, but it's very challenging, very competitive. It's a bloodthirsty race yeah. here. But to get it, very few positions, 400 applicants for one job, maybe at a, at a place like UC San Diego. And, uh, and you get, um, you know, it's a very long delayed gratification. So what are you going to tell them, Michio? Should we, should we let um, loop quantum gravity and string theory, should we give equal amounts of money? What about to experiment? And he's like, yeah, just give equal amounts of money. And I, I don't know. I mean, if, if we're, we're, you know, how do you divide up finite resources? How do you engage you know, the community so that young people have something productive to do. Do we have too many people doing string theory? I mean, Eric Weinstein has said that explicitly, and and, and, and you should know, he's a big fan of yours. Um, but, but you know, he said explicitly, we have, there's too many people, it's sucking the life out of it. And you, you probably heard the interview and, and Lee Small did, sort yeah. of agree. I, I must say on that one, uh, that uh, I, 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 I'm not involved in these hiring committee things, but no. I, I've heard enough people from Freeman Dyson to Martin Rees and other people. Uh, uh, it's a widespread view that um, uh, it's a very, very tough field, uh, yeah. string theory. And uh, I, I think there is a case that uh, that you, you can never be sure. You're never sure in, when you when you fund research. But I, I, if you ask the proportion of people working on that field, right, is it too high? Then I suspect it might be. Right. Because, you know, you really have to be, you know, uh, very advanced mathematically as well as have physical. Uh, uh, and you are working with these constant prompts of, 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 uh, of observation and experiment. So I, I, I don't want to be disloyal to my string theory friends, but I, I do. And I think you have a point, too. You know, you never know. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult to know what to invest money into in, 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 in physics. I've certainly persuaded that we need another accelerator to study study the Higgs much more carefully. But that said, you know, I appreciate the difficulty because governments, funding agencies, they want to see, you know, a uh, bang for their bucks. And, you know, out, out of the Large Hadron Collider, they've had one bang, you know, to put it very crudely, right? <laughs> now, that, that is, let me be very clear, I definitely invest in the accelerator. But, you know, we have to be real. Even Feynman, I know, you see my research, the university speaks at, uh, um, the university speaks in numbers. Even he said, which I think is right, it's a depressing thought, but we have to face it. It may, it may be that we one day we run out of money to do, uh, uh, to, to do these high energy experiments. I'm sorry if that depresses people, but he's yeah. a great, great physicist. And I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to worry about, right? But nonetheless, yeah. it's too early to think like that, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, I've I've often thought about that as as my role as an experimentalist is yep. kind of be like uh, Galileo's assayer, you know, to <laughs> to kind of <laughs> to look through and and to and to see what low hanging uh, fruit might remain, and it might be in the, and the, might be our our as you talk about at the end of the book, our silicon friends are you know the artificial physicists. Yep. So I, I've started a project very slowly going called Galileo. Where I'm trying to, you know, program the works uh, of Galileo, the text of his books. He wrote millions of words and dumped them into a general AI program, and and try to, you know, teach it very slowly quantum mechanics and so forth over the years, and see what pops out of the great mind because he was uh, certainly a unique, a, a unique uh, intellect. And I, I want to close out with two unique intellects, uh, one of whom I had on the podcast. Uh, before he passed away, and that was my friend Freeman Dyson. Oh, uh, great. Figures, oh, you had Freeman. Oh, great. Yes, many times. He was my first guest on the, pod, on the Impossible podcast. 
talk about Freeman. Uh, what did he mean to you? You, you talk about him. So uh, he was sort of this voice of reason. I want to relay a quote to you. What he and I talked about, in, in, and it's kind of an animating quote in my life, inside and outside of, of physics. And it was about God. We were talking about God and religion, and, and he kind of called himself a, an agnostic. And, and I used to chide him about that. You know, he's such a lovable person. And, and one of my favorite memories is to, is to, uh, is we'd have him over for Shabbat dinner, you know, we're Jewish and, and he'd come over and then my, my now eight year old, you know, oh. is basically 90 years younger than Freeman and, and Emna and, and, uh, they would talk and it was just funny seeing like nine decades difference. And they would just like have these really interesting conversations. And, uh, and at one point I said to him, you know, well, you know, Freeman, why do you, why do you have this interest in religion? Why don't you just either not go or not say you're an atheist because you don't go to church? Like you don't go to the same church that Richard Dawkins doesn't go to. So like, why don't you just call yourself an atheist? And he's like, well, you know, there are things in life that are mysteries and there are things in life that are puzzles. And, you know, to me, puzzles can be solved. You know, you might not be able to solve them, but there are solutions and somebody smarter than me or smarter than you can solve them. Uh, but then there are mysteries and mysteries may not have a solution, but that doesn't stop me from wrestling with them. Mm -hmm. And so my goal in life, I've started to think about like, my goal is to turn as many mysteries into puzzles as possible. <laughs> like that's kind of my mission statement. And I want to ask you like, what like mysteries are, are you most engaged with now? You, you talked about working on a, on a book about Stephen Hawking. I'm really curious. And of course, I'll, I'll invite you back in a heartbeat to talk about that. But what mysteries and, and what did Freeman mean to you uh, personally? And then we'll close out by talking about Nima. I can't resist. Well, uh, Fr uh, Freeman, I, when you say get to know, I got to know him well, I, uh, I'm not sure anyone really understood uh, Freeman, but uh, he was an incredible character. And I, yeah. I, I, I had spent dozens and dozens of hours talking to him. Um, uh, he, 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 I do. I, I well. At, but, but first thing to say, right, is to actually let him describe himself, right. I've, I've, <laughs> I've written a, um, a remembering Freeman Dyson article on my website. I wrote just a few days after he died, and I'm sure yeah. I began with this. But he he said to me, uh, and he said he said it elsewhere that he was only good at two things, which is uh, sol uh, uh, solving problems and writing essays. <laughs> now i you know i scoffed uh right i think forgivably right and, it, and he said and i said uh, something like that that's that's ridiculous or something like that and he said it may sound ridiculous but it's true and i remember him actually used saying that right um and he uh he he, he was a quite a superb mathematical physicist make make no mistake and a brilliant um uh, my probably my favorite writer Right yes. in, in physics, I mean the most mm -hmm. silken style, right? Um, so he he meant a, a, a lot uh, to, uh, to me. He, I, I do admit, I found it frustrating sometimes with his uh, contrarianism, right? Yes. He definitely had that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I I have got a kind of amateur theory here that I think he was so smart, um, uh, Freeman, that. He, it would be because no, most people he met, including all these other luminaries in physics, uh, right, he could find a way around what they were saying, right? So he, it was almost a game to him to say, for example, that uh, Churchill was the second best leader Britain had in the wartime. Who's the best Freeman? Oh, Neville Chamberlain. Right? <laughs> oh, there, there are dozens of others like that, right? And he would then hit, hit you with the thing that you hadn't thought of, a new perspective, right? Um, with uh, string, uh, 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 
it, what was particularly interesting, I thought, was in his approach to physics. Right? He thought the Large Hadron Collider was not a good use of money. He thought there were far too many people working in string theory, which we, mm -hmm. uh, we, we covered. He was always looking to provoke, right? He loved yes. that, right? Mm -hmm. And he, uh, uh, in, in Princeton, there's a statement you often hear in the Princeton community, right? Is namely that, uh, that Freeman would rather be interesting than right. <laughs> that I, I think is that. very perceptive, right? Yeah. He liked he liked the the you know the uh, the game of conversation. And I I really believe that's a profound thing to say about him. You know, he wanted yeah. to be interesting, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, ever being right, you know, that's a, that's a difficult th uh, th thing for him. What was what yeah. was your other question about about you asked about? Oh yeah, about, it'll be about Nima. But before we move on to that, I do want to say um, so when I was writing my book, it, you know, I didn't know if I was going to write any more books, and I wanted to get some star power blurbs on the back of the book. And so I, I asked Freeman, and it was right after my um, my uh, third child was born, my daughter, my first daughter. And I wrote Freeman. I said, dear Freeman, can you please um, do me the honor of writing a blurb for this book? It's about the, losing the Nobel Prize, you know, a subject that yeah, I thought he'd have some strong opinions about. Oh. I said, dear Brian, congratulations on getting the book done. And my love to your daughter, Orly. My problem with blurbs is that I have a strict rule not to write blurbs unless I've actually read the book. Yeah, that's and, right. And I, he told me that. Yep, and I already have a big pile of unread books. The idea is that a blurb is supposed to be an honest expression of information for the reader, not just a favor for the writer. Perhaps it's a silly, old-fashioned idea. Anyway, I hope the book does well without my help. Yours forever. Yep, that's absolutely Dicey. classic Freeman. And you know what? I've used that. And so now, as you have done and I have done, after you write a book, you get asked to write blurbs for people's books. So I got asked to write blurbs for books after my book. And I got a book in the mail just about uh, – uh, back in early December, and it was a book. It was about this thick, uh, about eight five hundred and ninety pages long, and yep. it was by about intelligent design. But it was by an, a Cambridge man uh, by the name of uh, Stephen Meyer, and he's a PhD in philosophy from oh. Cambridge, and he writes about intelligent design. And I've heard of him before. And he written me, "Would you, would you do me the honor of writing a blurb about this book called The Return of the God Hypothesis?" Oh. It's about entropy and, and and so forth, and I'll I'll put links to that in the in the show notes and whatever. And I said, uh, and he said, um, and could you could you do the blurb by next week? Said, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> so I said to him, "Look, Stephen, I I, I I like the idea, but um, but I have this rule that I inherited from my friend, the late great Freeman Dyson. So Freeman has got me out of a lot of sticky palavers, as you might say, over there across the pond. Um, the last question I have is is about." Um, is about Nima, and he figures very prominently in the book, and does provide a so-called blurb on the back of the book. And uh, he is the, you know, after you is the most requested guest on the Into the Impossible podcast. He calls this book, uh, "The Universe Speaks in Numbers," a riveting account of one of the greatest stories of our time. Graham Formello has delved in deep into this fascinating subject, combining original scholarship and lively interviews with contemporary theorists at its forefront of the field. The result is a masterful book, which gives us for the first time a behind-the-scenes look at how physicists and mathematicians, driven by their pursuit of the ultimate truth, capital T, yep. have been drawn into the common territory by their mysterious intellectual forces seemingly beyond their control. His, his blurb kind of – I'm going to encourage him to write a book. He's a spectacular <laughs> yeah, writer. He, he insisted on that capital T. When, that when, is when my when my publishers say no, it's got to be. He said no, I want capital T. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tie you know him and this um, and this and this capital T because it kind of brought up something a beautiful sentence that you kind of maybe put off. You know, maybe it was a throwaway line, but it stuck out to me like a like a phone call during a oh. during a 
glass of wine. And it was, uh, you say, um, even in mathematics, ignorance can be a virtue. Um, and I think about someone like Nima as just like this mathematical god. You know, he thinks of himself as a mathematician trained in Toronto, you know, et cetera. What, um, what did you mean by that? And can somebody like Nima be considered to be ignorant of mathematics? It seems well, like I, I, maybe, we have I, to be like I, a. I, yeah, you say that. I think Nima, I, I, I've, I've had loads of conversations with him, but amazing, amazing physicist, wonderful person. Um, the key thing about him is he's a physicist down to his, uh, down to his, uh, to his toes and his fingers, right? That's what he is. He's absolutely driven to understand uh, the underlying order of the universe, basically, right? And uh, and there is absolutely, you know, his, his passion, he wears his passion on his sleeve, so to speak. Now, he, uh, it's very important to, uh, when, 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 um, Thinking about Nima, he doesn't do mathematics for the sake of it, right? No. I I literally watched. I got to know him just after. I mean, just after he started at the Institute for Advanced Study, when he basically went in, and I quote him now, like a graduate student into uh, ampli uh, into amplitudes, right? Mm -hmm. Scattering amplitudes, which is about you know looking mathematically at the very deepest, uh, you know, the sc scattering between quarks and uh, you know, fundamental particles and looking at that lowest level of interaction, uh, describing them using quantum mechanics and relativity, as he's always banging on about, quite rightly. Now, uh, he, the, the stuff that he's been driven into, it's been a glorious thing for me as a friend of his to see, you know, he's amazed to, uh, and he's had to work incredibly hard to get into that mathematics, but he's not doing it to show off. Right, he's doing it because he's being led there. He's being pulled by the nose, so to speak. Right mm. into it, mm. and you mm -hmm. ask him why, he would say, "I'm pretty sure." Ask him when you speak to him. I would be a great podcast. Right, he will say he's being driven there by the fundamental principles at the heart of quantum field theory, and in particular, quantum mechanics and uh, and special relativity. Mm. They have together, right? And and you know, I, I remember asking him once, right? Are you sure? Are you really? saying that you could you, occasionally you find yourself veering off quantum mechanics or but and he said yes that is true okay uh, he, he said once he said to me i even did that this morning right you can check it line by line right <laughs> and it's though and that's where incidentally um uh, the, the the miracle that we that we have seen in in this amplitude stuff that nima has done so brilliantly and of course he has many brilliant collaborators uh, mm -hmm. uh who, who, who work with him uh, in a very creative way right that it's that forcing together a quantum mechanics that has given rise to these mathematical directions, right? It's mm. not done because he just wants to show off, right? It's because he right. feels it really is relevant to nature, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he's going to be a great guest on your uh, <laughs> your, 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 your podcast. But uh, so other... again, he wants to understand nature. I tell you a story about amplitude. Somebody told me this, and Nima didn't deny it. Um, when he got into it, and of course he's, he, he became a senior member of the field very, very fast. Somebody yes. wanted to do a uh, make a collaboration with him, and Nima said, "I'll do that, but if something comes up at the LHC, I'm dropping everything and going into that." Oh yeah. Now you see yeah. what I'm saying there. Yeah. It wasn't a case he, of him leaving that discipline. Do you see what I mean? Right. No, he is, uh, and he he's been uh, very very gracious, very um, very uh, generous with his time and and corresponding with me. But he's 
clearly deep involved in some in some very significant work and he he begs you know kind of to to just just you know forestall the conversation with me and i've and i've of course i'm going to give him you know whatever time he needs and it might actually work out that i get to see him in person because i have a meeting out there in, in a month or so and i I might actually get to do the interview in person, which would be really spectacular. Yeah, the last a, he, person he, I he was a great in my, in my podcast. We, we, it's the only one we split up because it was just un, uneditable. It was just so great. The level of yeah. the deep, the depth of it, and the enthusiasm was so great. Oh, it's wonderful. But he's, a, yeah. he's a, you know, he's uh, he's a wonderful ambassador for the excitement, the continued excitement of physics. At yeah, the and time when some people are struggling to, to maintain that. Yeah, the person, last person I want to speak about before I have to run and teach myself is is just uh, is kind of in contrast to him is is uh, Gerard Hooft, I think is how you pronounce oh, yeah. his name. I, I'm hoping to get him on the podcast as well. But he seems to be kind of the the Freeman Dyson like character, you know, the old guard in, in some sense. And uh, maybe I'll send him this episode to convince him to come on. But what are your impressions of him and, and where he is? He's still quite active. He has uh, yeah, a paper. He is, uh, absolutely. He's, I really do believe he's one of the great uh, physicists. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, he really is. I mean, uh, um, and uh, you, you, you have to take everything he says seriously. He certainly yes. seems to be quite skeptical of modern developments, I think it's fair to say mm -hmm. now. And, you know, he's looking at new ways of formulating quantum mechanics. Uh, which uh, which uh, he, I've noticed how careful he is to say to young people, go and learn it from the standard books. I'm, you know, but he, he's obviously unhoffy with the formulation of it. But no, no, no Tehoft is an absolutely another one. Incidentally, is is his uh, he, uh, basically they were like a duo in my time in particle physics, and that's uh, Sasha Polyakov at, at Princeton, at Princeton yes. University. Those two were basically neck and neck in many ways. You know, I mean, they are both absolutely brilliant physicists. Um, and it's a shame now that uh, well, I mean, I must you must patronise them, but uh, you know that they were our heroes in in the seventies. You know, they were just absolutely teeming. And of course, the the, the thing what, what I say to Nima so often, he he really doesn't like this, incidentally. Right? Is don't you, don't you sometimes miss that these Tahuts and and Polyakovs and and Weinbergs had actual data, right? And he yeah. said, no, no, this is the uh, uh, what what Nima will say is. We're getting data from the Large Hadron Collider, and it's telling us something. It's our job, right, to interpret that null result, just like, in a sense, Einstein did with Michelson Morley, right? No result. That is telling you something, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. The most famous uh, failed experiment in history done at my alma mater, Case Western Reserve That's University. That, well, it's, uh, again, it's, it's, that history of that is endlessly fascinating. How can a null result right be so powerful but we know it was yep absolutely and again if we had looked at falsification as our only criterion how backwards things would have been yeah, Ram yeah. Formello, i want to thank you so much uh well, tell me is are you going to resume your podcast uh, it doesn't it... well i i, I may do at the moment i'm deep in uh, there's, there's what 25 interviews there uh yeah but at the moment i'm deep in writing the life of uh, stephen uh, stephen hawking so uh, we, we we will see but for the okay, moment, congratulations please. on the job you're doing. You produce a, a wonderful uh, corpus of interviews. So I'm very grateful. There's a lot for, a lot for us to work through. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show, for being a guest, and uh, for inspiring us with your podcast, and for this wonderful book, and for uh, the book on Churchill, Dirac. We'll have you back. And please do let me know as soon as you're done with the book on Hawking. I'd love to have you on. I had Charles Siphon for his book. Uh, you may have read it. Uh, you may have seen the interview. Uh, it's quite critical. I'd love to have a discussion with you. 
Uh, and maybe we could have a friendly debate with with uh, Charles. That would be an interesting uh, kind of a uh, uh, pairing to do if you're if you're up for it. But uh, for now, Graham, thank you so much for spending well, so much you, of Ryan. your valuable time. It's been a delight and a pleasure. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Please support the show by rating, commenting, sharing, and leaving reviews. We appreciate hearing from you, and it really helps keep our universe expanding. Watch our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating. That's D-R, Brian Keating. And join our premieres Tuesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Follow Brian on Twitter and Medium, and support us on Patreon at Dr. Brian Keating. For exclusive content, visit Brian Keating's website and sign up for his informative newsletter at briankeating.com. Into the Impossible is produced with the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination in the Division of Physical Sciences at the University of California, San Diego. Produced by Stuart Volko and Brian Keating.